As you know, we have been in a series that really hasn't been a series from Philippians, at least not yet, because we have been looking at Philippians 1.1 only in the sense as a launching point to talk about elders and deacons, because elders and deacons are listed in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, but even though they are listed there, there's really nothing said about them in Philippians 1.1. So if you're new to the church or possibly new to our church, you might be asking the question when you open a book like the book of Philippians and Paul says, with the elders and deacons, who are they? What is an elder? What is a deacon? What role do they play in the church and why does the Apostle Paul mention them? And what is it about them that merits his mention of them in the very first section of Philippians 1.1. And we've been endeavoring to answer that question over many weeks now. I think this is part eight of a series on what are elders and what are deacons, spiritual leadership in the church. And if you know anything of what I've already gone over regarding the office of elder... We've been looking at the call of an elder and the character or the conduct of an elder. And that's where we are now. We're going to be looking later at the capabilities of an elder or the creed of an elder. And then lastly, the commitment of an elder. But we've been in the middle portion of our series talking about the character qualities of an elder. Who is he? And right now, we've been looking mostly at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and we've grouped these qualifications into four categories. The first category that we talked about was the family life of an elder. And then last time, we started looking at the mental capabilities or character qualities of an elder, who he is to be mentally. And now I want to talk about another particular category. Not just his marriage and his family life, not just his thinking or his mental life, but for this morning, his reputation. Or maybe we could call it his social life. Not just his marital life, not just his family life, not just his mental life, his, his thinking, but also his reputation. The social life of an elder. And believe it or not, I want to go through 10 character qualities. I know you laugh, but I shall do it. (laughs) I shall do it because I must do it. Or we'll be getting into part 23 of the Elder Series, and I don't want to do that. So, let's talk about the reputation of a man. Okay, here's an elder. And of course... We're going to talk about deacons when we get there in 2022, but when we get there, we will get there. But I want to talk this morning about the reputation or the social life of an elder. And here's the first one. Here's the first idea of a man in his reputation as an elder. He is to be respectable. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you will find in verse 2... A word about the respectability of an elder. It occurs near the end of verse 2, right before you get to verse 3. And it's in our ESV Bible, the English Standard Version. That's the version I'm using. And it's the English word respectable. Respectable. It's actually a fascinating word from which we derive this English word respectable. It's a word that comes out of the Greek world that is actually the Greek word world. Cosmos. Cosmos. And this particular word is kosmion. Kosmion. It means orderly. It means orderly. It means proper behavior. It means virtuousness. Well-behaved. Self-controlled even. We might say that an elder is a man with inner moral 
excellence. Inner moral excellence. This is a man who is perceived by others as virtuous and well-ordered in his life, a man who is well-respected, respectable in the facets of his life. It's very interesting. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 2.9, just one chapter prior to chapter 3, for a woman who has on proper clothing. The word proper is cosmion. It's the idea that she's well-ordered, who's making the right choices with regard to her outward appearance. The same idea is actually communicated about Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. All my people in the city know, Boaz says, that you are a woman of excellence. That's the idea. It's also true and been said of Job and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. They manifested an inner moral excellence. You see, if you're an elder, you have a virtuous inner life and you are fulfilling properly all of your outward duties. The man who is a cosmion is a man who has his conduct that is not unseemly, whose life is in accord with the honorable position that he holds. That's what it means. He must be and is, I might say, composed and solid. You know, there are people that use a word today that I think is a good word, might also serve as a synonym, the idea that he has gravitas. Gravitas. He has weight. He's respected. He's not worshipped, he's not venerated, but he is respected. He's a man who has a respectful behavior. It's a very, very good idea. It's the idea that you and I, as all Christians, not just the elder, but all Christians are trying to, to order our life in such a way that people will look at us and Christianity will be commended to them. Number two. Number two, arrogant, not arrogant. That's what the ESV says, Titus 1.7. Titus 1.7. I'm going to bounce from 1 Timothy 3 to Titus 1 interchangeably, and this is another character quality of his social life, his reputation. Your translation may say not self-willed, not self-willed. The ESV says that he is not arrogant. Very, very interesting. The combination of these these two words that form this one particular Greek word, um, one of the front parts of this word is self and the latter part is pleasure. He's not a self-pleasing individual. He's not about pleasing himself. In other words, if you're self-pleasing, you can be arrogant or maybe even stubborn or to be obstinate in one's opinion. Uh, you are someone, if you're arrogant, uh, if you're not um, so fixed on the idea of others instead of yourself, if you're fixed on yourself, you're refusing to yield or listen to others. That's this attribute. That's this character quality. You're not arrogant. And do you notice that interchangeably in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, sometimes uh, Paul will give the uh, sort of the positive, you are this, and sometimes he says, you're not that, whatever that is. And here he says in the negative, you're not arrogant. You're not self-willed. This is a man who, who obstinately, if he's arrogant, if he's self-willed, he obstinately maintains his own opinions or he asserts his own rights and is reckless with regard to the desires and the plans and the interests of others. Now, you don't want an elder like that. You want an elder who listens to you doesn't mean that you always agree, but you can tell, even if there are levels of disagreement about this or that or the other thing, not, of course, doctrine, not, of course, the things that the Word of God tells us explicitly, but in your interactions with Him, He is listening to you, He hears your point, and even if He doesn't, dis- even if he doesn't agree with that, He disagrees with it, you believe that He has heard you out. That's, that's this person. Proverbs twenty one twenty four says, Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. You see, you don't want an elder 
who is filled with himself, his self-pleasure, his arrogance, and he's not listening, he's self-willed, that's the opposite of what it means to be gentle and forbearing. That's the kind of man that you want. You know that it says about a false teacher in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, or bold and arrogant, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then it even says about the glorious ones, about angels, even angels don't bring a railing accusation, but they leave it to the Lord. I mean, even the glorious angels, even God's uh, uh, regents in the world who are um, silent to us, even though we're not, we're not seeing them, these glorious angels who are all around and about us, even they don't appear as arrogant and self-willed. And even when they deal with either false teachers or even demons, they let the Lord bring a railing judgment. That's something for us to learn. This is, this is a man who is not stubborn. He's listening to others. Alex Strzok, I've quoted him from his excellent book, Biblical Eldership. He's a dear friend of mine. And he says this about an arrogant man. Quote, A self-willed man wants his own way. A self-willed man is headstrong, independent, self-assertive, and ungracious, particularly toward those who have a different opinion. A self-willed man is not a team player, and the ability to work as a team is essential to leadership. Oh, I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to an elder meeting through 35 years of elder meetings. Did you hear me? 35 years of elder meetings. Many long elder meetings. Sometimes five, six, seven, eight hour long elder meetings in one shot with a few potty breaks in between. And there are times when I've gone to such elder meetings and there might be a man or two in their midst who are self-willed, arrogant. They, they, are, they are only wanting their perspective to be heard. And when we lovingly and carefully and exactingly use the Word of God to come to bear on their minds, if they're working on those areas, and if the Holy Spirit is impinging upon that conscience to see it, they confess it. They see it. And they respond to it. And they'll say something like, men, I don't want to be that way. Pray for me. Help me. Let me work through these dynamics. Look, please forgive me for what I just said. I don't want to come across that way. And then it blows fresh wind into that meeting. And you're saying, now we're getting somewhere. somewhere. Now, now we're able to del- deliberate and discuss things in a God-honoring way. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes in the midst of that meeting, it just continues on and on and on. And sometimes you can see or perceive such a pattern develop where you have to go to the brother and you have to say with other elders and maybe even others within the congregation, we've got a challenge, we've got an issue, we've got to work through this. And if we don't work through this, then the congregation deserves your stepping down so that we can be in the kinds of meetings that will not only honor God, but will give our congregation the best kind of leadership possible. And sometimes the Lord works in such a way that that brother sees it. And they do step down. And there have been on occasions, sadly, situations in which according to 1 Timothy 5, that an elder in the midst of the witnesses of other elders has to be forcibly removed from such an office because they refuse to repent. Because they refuse by the very nature of the arrogance to not see the log in the eye and who refuse and in a sense take the entire church hostage with such a demeanor. As though their their way can be the only way. As though that man and his opinions are the only opinions worth listening to. And the only direction in which the church should go. And you don't want that. And that's why the bar is being set 
incredibly high, not just in this one church, but the bar is being set incredibly high as it relates to this book. I'm not setting a standard beyond what I'm doing. Have you noticed in this series what I've done? Every time we've gone over a character quality, I define it in terms of the original language, what it means, context, other elucidating passages, other cross-referencing for that same issue, that same character quality. All I'm doing is just telling all of us, including myself, mainly, mostly myself, Lance, this is the standard. You see, what's, what's happening in the church, the church at large, evangelicalism in general, and, and particular churches with specificity, that we have lowered the standard so incredibly deep down and further than it should ever, ever be into the kind of mediocrity within the leadership that the church follows suit. It's like Hosea, like people, like priests. This is, this is a, an ideal in which the bar should be placed high, not low, so that those who aspire to such an office can raise the, the, the spiritual equilibrium of, of the church to that highest level. So that the church can see and so that the world can commend to Christianity those within the fellowship who are aspiring to see the models among them so that they can follow such models. And when they rise to the level of their own leadership, God's church is working properly. God's grace is abundant. That's that's what's going on here. Anyone who is unyielding and overbearing is not fit to be an elder. That's the bottom line. In fact, in the list that Paul gives of sins that will characterize the last days, and I think we may be in the latter days of the last days. I don't know. But I think we may have seen it because in 2 Timothy 3.4, it says men will be pleasure lovers. Lovers of pleasure. That's the idea of that arrogance. They, they love their own pleasure. That's the opposite of this qualification. If, if a man is self-willed, he's not going to be hospitable. If he's not respectable, he will cease to be self-serving and he will not serve the flock. Number three. Number three. Not pugnacious. Not pugnacious. Or Titus 1.7 in the ESV says, not violent. 1 Timothy 3.3 also says it. Not violent. It means he's not a striker of blows, not a fighter. Your translation may say that he's not a brawler, right? Here, here's the idea. It may not be that he's always trying to knock somebody physically out of the game, but verbally he might. Verbally he might. He knows that he's not uh, going to be around long at all if he uh, smacks the pastor upside the head. He may not be around along if we hear at some point that two elders got into a brawl in the parking lot because they disagreed with each other in the meeting. You know, there was a situation in a former church in which there was an elder who became so upset that his daughter was sort of being whisked away romantically by another young man um, in the fellowship. And they surprised, even though they thought it was going to be a wonderful affirmation in a restaurant in the city, they, they thought they would surprise her mom and dad with the engagement ring that he had given her, for which the parents had no idea. And dad wasn't happy. And dad was an elder. And dad challenged the young man to a fist fight. Now thankfully, there was a person in the parking lot from another church who saw all of the distress signals and that Christian brother came up to the dad and the would-be wannabe son-in-law and said, gentlemen, stop. Stop what you're doing. And then when he found out that these were two professing brothers in Christ, he was incredulous. You mean to commend Christianity to the masses with a fist fight? Now that may be an extreme example, but what about those men in the fellowship who might do that in their hearts? 
They may not, they might not reach out and slug somebody in the nose, but they might have thoughts of pugnaciousness in their hearts. Why doesn't anybody give me the time of day? I can't believe that Lance doesn't understand this. I can't believe that so-and-so doesn't get along with the program. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to basically ransack the place mentally and I'm going to show them who's boss. That's pugnaciousness. Anybody ever had an experience of that? It's, it's not befitting the fellowship, let alone the eldership. He's not a bully. Not a fighter. This refers to one who in rage and being self-willed would just as soon come to blows with his opponent who doesn't agree with him. And you can begin to see a scenario of a man who's given to much wine, let's say. Right? He's lingering long in wine. Or maybe he's self-willed. Or maybe he's not gentle and forbearing. And, and who by his character is pugnacious. Uh, uh, you, you cannot have such a man serve as an elder. You just can't. It's not going to work. I mean, the elder of the Lord, the minister of the Lord, the under-shepherd of the Lord must never strike his brother. Don't you think that that was something that actually got Moses into a lot of trouble? He didn't just strike him, he killed him. And then you spend 40 years on the backside, right? This is, this is a very important thing, and I know in our uh, sort of sophisticated culture, People say, well, I've never seen that. I don't think I would ever see that. I've heard examples from my own fellow pastor brethren where a deacon in the church pulled a gun in a church meeting. I mean, we could be, again, talking about the extremes over here on this side or maybe the more subtle extremes over here where a person is so embattled and so pugnacious that you can hardly get any initiatives going because he's always on the other side and I've seen a million of them. Okay, maybe not a million. I tell my kids all the time, I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. But I've seen a bunch of them. And you know when you've seen a bunch of them, it sure seems like a million. Where you just... He's just always on the other side of the issue. And sometimes being on the other side of the issue seems so trivial when we're talking at times about things that aren't as important as other things. And he just seems to be on the other side of the matter and he seems to delight in being the one guy who almost always seems to vote no. When you ask him for the rationale, you and I are going... I don't get that. I don't understand that. That's not logical. That doesn't seem critical. That, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Why can't we move on from this? And it's because he wants to be heard. A man who is not qualified in this way is sooner using his fists than his kindness. And that's not a man you want. You know, it's like the local bully you know, who's ready at any point to challenge anyone to fight. That's, that's what Scripture says when it warns us against such a man. A pugnacious man is a fighter with a bad temper. He's irritable. He's out of control. And I think especially when you interview such a one who someone is nominating, you ought to talk to his wife and children. Because often if they want to be transparently honest, they might themselves be so concerned and yet so afraid of telling the truth. So then you go to a wider group, and you look for any clues. It's not like you're uh, trying to uh, disqualify a person, and, and when you go through every attempt possible known to man to disqualify someone, somebody may be qualified. That's not what we're saying, right? You don't just look for every little pinhole so that you can sort of zap the guy and say you're not qualified. But if there's some kind of compartmentalization going on, where things look really well on the outside, things look really well at church, but maybe things aren't altogether well at home. That's why, for me personally, just to put my own standard on display, not that I'm anything, but I welcome you to talk to my wife. I welcome you to talk to my children. They're in the church. They serve as members. Ask them, is he the same guy at home as he is here? Does he have faults at home? You better believe it. 
Are those faults disqualifying him in the fellowship? No, sir. Ask about other elders. Do your homework. You know, whenever those nomination times come, ask about the preacher. Ask around. Talk to people. Not, not gossip sessions. Not gossip sessions. Talk to them first. Talk to the wives. Talk to the family members. Talk to the children. If they're young adult children or if they're older children, talk to them. Ask them. Hey, I want to affirm this guy. I want to do my own due diligence. I want to affirm. Why? Because I want to follow his leadership. I want to follow his leadership. You know, when I was working through this, not just the, the study, but I came up with my own sense of what questions would I want to ask, ask a fellow brother in, a, in an interview, nomination, examination context. And I came up with 25 questions that I would love to ask. If you'd like me to give you that list, I'm happy to do it. We could post it on our website. We could distribute it uh, to the, the entire congregation to say, here are some questions that you ought to think about asking because this is so incredibly important. The idea of elders who are leading the church, the idea of deacons who are serving the church, incredibly important. Strock says, elders must handle highly, highly interpersonal conflicts, emotional interpersonal conflicts, and deeply felt doctrinal disagreements between believers. Boy, isn't that important. Man, it's incredibly important. Listen again. Elders must handle highly emotional interpersonal conflicts and deeply felt doctrinal disagreements between believers. Elders are often at the center of very tense situations. So, a bad-tempered, pugnacious person is not to solve issues and problems. He will, in fact, create worse explosions. Because a pugnacious man will treat the sheep roughly and even hurt them. He cannot be one of Christ's under-shepherds. It's true. It's true. Every time I go into a meeting, every time I'm working with somebody in the flock, every interaction that I have with you, my prayer, this sort of unconscious prayer is, Lord, don't, me, don't let me say the wrong thing. Don't let me do the wrong thing. Here's a sheep. Here's a loving person that I want to interact with. Now, look, you can already tell, I'm fired up. I'm fired up about things, right? I'm fired up about the truth. I'm fired up about leadership. I'm fired up about eldership. Don't take my, um, my ferocity at doctrine. Don't, don't take my energy with how I passionately preach as though I'm upset about something. I'm not. I just get excited about the truth and I get excited about shepherding. And in the context of that, when you're talking to me and I hear your heart, I'm going to be as tender toward you with whispers. And when I'm talking to a false teacher, I'm going to be enraged at the fact that he has misrepresented the truth of our very God. And, and within the balance of those emotions, God will work his work in and through the fellowship for your good and for God's glory and for my development. Here's number four. Number four, gentle. And you know that would come right out of the pugnaciousness, Right? Here's gentle, 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. It means forbearing, patience, fairness, moderation. It's, it's, those are all synonyms for being gentle. I love this too because the particular word that it comes from, you could get the English word equity. Equity. Equilibrium. He's even keeled. He's gentle. This particular word originally meant what was fitting. Fair, reasonable, but it was also associated with the idea of yielding, implying one who does not stand on his rights, but is ready to give way to others. Now, look, gentleness, listen to me carefully, gentleness is not passivity. A lot of people mistake the idea of gentleness with passivity. There have been, in this year this year of our merged churches together, times in which I have had people come to me on the same day, sometimes when, when in the same level of hours, like one hour here, one hour there, and somebody's coming to me and they're saying this, why aren't you doing something about that? Come on, be a leader. Be more direct. Be, be, be a guy who's decisive, 
Come on, what are you thinking? Uh, This is imploding. This is wrong. This needs to be worked on. Come on, I want to see you be more direct. One hour later, you know, I just think you're way too direct. (laughs) I I just think that that you're you're trying to make so many changes. And and you got to slow down. You got to be patient with people. And then you go home and you look at yourself in the mirror and then you go to bed. You look in the mirror because you see how aged you've become. And you go to bed because you're tired. The bottom line is this. You can be gentle and forbearing, but don't mistake that for passivity. And remember this, gentleness is not the opposite of manliness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, I want you to be on the, on the alert. I want you to be firm in your faith. And I want you to be strong. And then he said this, act like a man. Well, how do men act? They're strong. They're courageous. But don't take someone's strength and courage as a billy club. Because if you're strong and you are vibrant and you are courageous as a man, don't mistake that for a lack of love. Because you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Be on the alert. Be firm in the faith. Be strong or have courage, act like a man, and then he says this, and let everything you do be done in love. What a balance. What an incredible balance. Be strong, Lance. Be courageous, Lance. Oh, and by the way, everything you do, even in your strength and courage, do it in love. Wow, what a standard. And that's why he says, don't be pugnacious, be gentle, but in your gentleness, don't act as though you are Casper Milk Toast. Don't act as though you're scared of your own shadow. Right? If you've got the Word of God at your disposal, who can be weak? We have the strength of the Word of God here. And gentle, forbearing spirits among the eldership is a premium. Gentleness is a true mark of a man who does not stick only on minor points but he's considerate. He's open. He's fair-minded. He's desperately trying to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you know, we, we, we sang right before I started to preach, show us Christ. I want to show you Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.1. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. 2 Corinthians 10.1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Oh, So Christ was gentle and meek? Oh, yes, He was. And Christ also said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I mean, He castigated those religious leaders. Read Matthew 23. The entirety of the chapter is, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe means damn you, judge you, consign you to hell forever. That's That's not kind of a meek and mild Jesus. That's the Jesus you can't ignore, my friends. That's the Jesus who, when He is strong, is strong on doctrine, strong on following His heavenly Father and not besmirching the name of God in His midst. That's why He he actually, in the midst of seeing all the money changers in the temple, slowly and methodically and with premeditation made a whip and then He drove them all out of the temple and said, stop making my Father's house a place of business rather than a place of prayer. Now, that's no milk toast Christ. But it also says in our Bibles, I want you to follow me, Paul, as I follow Christ who's meek and gentle. Philippians 4 5. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Wow! You say, who is sufficient for these things? I agree with you. Only the Spirit of God can produce this, right? Only the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, can produce these things. Listen to Titus 3.2. I mean, if Titus 1 says, here are the qualifications of an elder, here's what Titus 3.2 says. Malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Wow. All men? And then, of course, we ask the question, why? He says, because have you forgotten what you were like before Christ? And then in James, it says in James 3, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. 
let's call it a sympathetic equilibrium. You're even keel. You're conciliatory. You have a sweet reasonableness about you. Or I like this, graciously amenable. You're graciously amenable. And sometimes that's mistaken in what I'm trying to affect in my leadership. Not that I'm the model at all, but the gracious amenability of a person is sometimes seen as this passive idea, this, this weakness. Come on, let's go. And I'm saying, you can't lead everybody by assuming everybody's going to follow in the exact same way. They're going to be stragglers. They're going to be those who, who are lost. They're going to be those who need extra time, extra effort, extra opportunity, extra prayers, extra instruction. And yes, there are going to be time when there are those who are out of cadence. They don't want to do it. They're lazy, listless. They're undisciplined. They need to be admonished. That's why Paul tells us, that is the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you've got to admonish the unruly. Why? Because they're unruly. You've got to encourage the faint-hearted. Why? Because they're faint-hearted. And you've got, to, you've got to make peace or be at peace with all men, even as you're gentle with all. I mean, do I have, not only as a pastor, but as an elder, an incredibly difficult job description? Are you praying for me yet? Are you praying for us? If you come at 5 o'clock, you can actually pray with us. This, this, is, this, is, this is all we're all about for the flock. The gentle man exhibits a willingness to yield and patiently makes allowances for weaknesses and ignorance of the fallen human condition. One who is gentle refuses to retaliate in kind for wrongs done by others and does not insist upon the letter of the law or his personal rights. He's gentle. Here's another one. Five, peaceable. Peaceable. I better hurry, huh? Peaceable. 1 Timothy 3.3. In the ESV it says, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. It's without fighting. He doesn't have contentiousness about him. He's not quarrelsome. He's actually adverse to fighting. He wants to be a non-combatant. I mean, since the day Cain killed his brother Abel, men have been fighting and killing one another. But the church, especially the eldership, is called to be different, right? Called to be different. And there are going to be, within the fellowship, those times when your gentleness and your desire not to quarrel will still make you do what Titus 3, 9-11 says. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife or dissensions and quarrels, disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him, and by the way, the word division after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him, Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That idea of division, it's the word hereticos, heresies. I mean, sometimes you've got to deal with the heresies. You've got to deal with someone who's, who's stirring up division. Hey, i got the latest thing. i got the latest idea. I had a fellow in Little Rock who came to me. Pastor, i got to meet with you. And he said, I've been listening to this overnight uh, radio program. And man, I've been listening because my job allows me to listen to the radio while I'm working the graveyard shift. And I've been listening to this for years, and I'm totally convinced now about UFOs. Totally convinced. I said, oh, I'm fascinated. Tell me more. And I said, have you ever had an experience with one of them? Oh, yes, I have. Oh, yes, I did. It was, it was, it was wild. They took me onto their spaceship. When they took me onto their spaceship, they actually told me, now we're going to tell you something that most of evangelical Christians do not understand, and that is this, that Jesus is not God. I said, you know what? That wasn't a spaceship. And those weren't little green men. That's not a UFO. That's Satan. And that's the demons who would want you to believe that Jesus Christ is not divine. And you better say no to that because your mind is becoming twisted against the truth of the Word of God. You've got to repent of that. 
He said, absolutely not. I believe them. I don't believe you. Hey, sometimes you got to talk about UFOs. And I got my, my uh, credit card ready and I went to the local Christian store and I bought up every book I could possibly know about UFOs. And I read every book I had in my library about little green men and spaceships and UFOs and what they generally do. And you know what's fascinating? The one thing that was common to all of those who had similar experiences was the idea that they were twisted in their doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ. I had to deal with it. But, but even when you deal with that, you deal with it peaceably and gently, but you deal with it nonetheless. 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 25, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Did you notice that? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, gentle correction of those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. I thought maybe in God's good providence I could win him. I could win him to a place where he says, I repudiate such thinking. My pastor, the elders, the church, they've come to me and they've challenged me not to think such thoughts. They're devilish. They're diabolic. And all the while, gentle, peaceable, not quarreling, not getting stuck into a a quarrelsome match. That's why Proverbs 6.19, the latter part says, The Lord hates one who spreads strife among brothers. I've, I've I've seen elderships spread strife about other elders. Can you imagine that? Elders working against other elders. And I've seen congregations spreading strife about the elders, about talking to other congregation members about the elders. That's strife. How about number six? Free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Or not fond of sordid gain. Not a lover of money, 1 Timothy 3 says. Not greedy for gain, Titus 1.7 says. Boy, is this not important? Literally, the word means not a lover of silver. Not a lover of silver. Not greedy. Being content. Boy, if there's one thing that marks... You look at, you look at 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3, and you look at Jude, the little epistle of Jude, and then you look peppered out through the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and you just read, highlight, mark up every time there's something about money and somebody following money. And you look, and all of these passages about false teachers and false prophets, you'll find two things. The issue of the love of money and the issue of sexual sin. And is it any wonder that when we find out someone who's fallen, who's had some kind of high place of visibility in uh, what they say is the kingdom of God, and when they fall, what do they fall to? What's exposed? It's something about money and it's something about sex in all of its various forms. And that's why this qualification is here. Not a lover of money. Elders cannot be men who inordinately control the church's funds and who refuse financial accountability. You cannot have a Judas-like attitude. If you're controlled by a desire to love money and power, you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, and thus you can't serve as an elder. Sordid gain. You say, what is sordid gain? That's the old English taking from others even though they have an abundance and you take it from them so you can have an abundance. Not greedy for dishonest gain. You say, well, I mean, look, money's power. Yes, well, you know what Proverbs 23, 4 says? Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Verse 5, when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Hey, you got all your time and effort into it? You ever seen a U-Haul, a, a hearse carrying a U-Haul? It's, it's gone. It's, it's going to fly away. Put your money in persons in the kingdom. Number seven, devout. 
I mean, somebody's upright. Titus 1.8, he's, he's upright. He's pious. He's pleasing to God. Here's another one. Number eight, holy or just. Titus 1.8. It's, it's used not in the sense of a legal justification at salvation. It's, it's the righteousness of a life of a person. He is continually law-abiding. He's righteous in the sense that he's pursuing rightness. That's why 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Somebody who's holy, devout. How about number nine, not a new convert? Not a new convert. Not a recent convert. 1 Timothy 3.6. Why? So that he will, the Bible says, 1 Timothy 3.6, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation or puffed up with conceit incurred by the devil. You can't have a, you can't have a new believer. He, he, could be, he could be 25 years old or 35 years old and a new convert and he should not be serving as an elder. He could be... 75 years old or 85 years old and a new convert. And just because he's older doesn't necessarily mean he can automatically be an elder. Not a new convert, even regardless of his age, because a new convert has the tendency in this puffed up, conceited idea that when he's serving as an elder and he hasn't yet been tested through the crucible of life itself, spiritually speaking, biblically speaking, he's going to be conceited. You don't want that man. You don't want that man. And finally, finally, this is so incredibly important. 1 Timothy 3.7, moreover, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, outsiders. Wow! You say, how do you qualify a guy in that realm? Well, I used to get on the phone, and when I was seeing these men nominated to serve as elders, we, we would all get a phone number for a fellow employee or an employer. And we just call them and say, does he have good, good business dealings? Is he fair? Does he have integrity? Do you have concerns about him? He, he wants to be a servant elder in our church, and we're just checking with those outside the church, outsiders. Of course, that even means unbelievers. And we're calling, or if we could meet with you for lunch, we'd like to go through this examination, and we're asking you, is he the same man at work that he is in our church. We've already developed the idea about his family life. Now what about his business dealings? You say, this seems so invasive. I mean, are you, are you kidding me? It says that he must have a good reputation. I ask you the question. If he's supposed to have a good reputation with those outside the church, how do you know? How do you find out? You've got to talk to somebody, right? You, you, you can't talk to him. I mean, you could talk to him, and if he says, yes, I believe I am, then he ought to be the one who says, hey, let me give you Bill's number. Uh, you could talk to Charlie. You could, you could talk to whoever you want. I just want somebody to affirm what I believe to be true, and I'm actually kind of interested myself to see whether or not my witness, my testimony, is going to be affirmed by them. Please do that. And I even had one brother say to me, when he was being nominated as an elder, this is actually great because if you call this particular fellow, it will give, give me an even greater entree into my current gospel witnessing toward him. That my, that my people at my church are actually asking about my reputation in front of him so that when I talk to him again, I'm going to say, hey, did so-and-so call you from my church? Yes, they did. And you know, unbelievers are blown away. Because we're that concerned about a man's reputation. This is phenomenal, God's design. Because he wants godly men. He wants somebody. By the way, the word reputation there, marturion, witness, martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from. Someone's not a martyr, of course, for, for the cause of the eldership, but he's a marturion, he's a witness. His reputation is a witness commending the gospel. You say, I don't know that there are going to be very many elders. You know who will be elders? The ones whom God wants. The one whom God is calling. And that's the kind of elder we want. Let's pray.
Father, we want favorable character elders. We want those who are respectable, not self-willed, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, not contentious, free from the love of money, just and devout and not proud, but a good reputation, not a, a new convert, one who might be conceited that he's been promoted so fast. Oh, Father, would you give us this kind of eldership? We believe you want it. We believe you must have it. We believe you're working in our fellowship to bring it. And we shall pray and wait to see this man materialize, to be a model, and not just one man, many men, a plurality of godly men. We pray that you would take our current eldership, including my own life, my own testimony, the requirements from the Word of God, and sift through our lives to see if we are those who are genuinely and truly qualified to serve. And we want you to do this, Lord, not every time of a voting, not every time of a qualification, a period, a season, a limit. We want you to do this every month, every year, so that we remain qualified. This is our hope. This is our desire. This is our pledge that we want to be these godly men in the fellowship. Oh, I pray it would be so. I pray it would be true of my own life. Lord, don't let me be the hero of all my own stories. Don't don't let me be uh, the person who's setting myself up not only to be self-aggrandized by others, but setting myself up also for failure. But I do aspire. I do desire this office because I believe it is what you have manifested in and through the life of a man who's called and characterologically gifted and, and qualified, who, who wants to be in his capabilities and in his creed and in his commitment, a person who loves Jesus Christ with all of his heart and who loves the sheep of God. He, he wants to shepherd the flock of God. Bring it to us, Lord, we pray, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. Amen. Please stand.